ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Well, all right. Welcome to the Launchpad Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. I'm Tom Holland. Uh. <laughs> we have a special guest in the Launchpad today. We have world-famous director, creator of Fright Night, wrote direct Fright Night, directed and co-wrote Child's Play. He's done multiple Tales from the Crypt episodes. He wrote Psycho 2. He worked on Class of 1984. I mean, this guy has done more than you realize and you start looking at different things. You're like, oh, he did that. He did that. He did that. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very, very much. It's very nice to be here. Tom is a legend. And, you know, to, to work on any movies, I know that like Aaron and I have always wanted to work on a movie that has a lasting impression on not just the fans of, of the genre, whatever it may be, but cinema. But you have done multiple films, multiple TV shows that have that that title start us back back in the day where did you grow up when did you start getting into films uh, you know tell us a little bit about your childhood well i'm probably like i'm probably like you two guys i came out of i came out of nowhere in the sense that i didn't know anybody in the business i was born in vassar hospital in poughkeepsie new york i was i was raised a lot of the time in a small town across the hudson river called highland new york but my father also had a men's store and then later later on a, a woman's store in a place called Ossining, New York, which was a bedroom community or is a bedroom community in New York City. It's also the, the home of Sing Sing Prison. And I always described it as the asshole of Westchester County. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it was where the rich people caught the train to and from New York City. Okay. Back in the day, it was a commuter town to New York City. So that's like if you said you were from from Queens and then from Long Island, mm -hmm. and then they they took the throughway and they put it out to the Hamptons and wrecked the Hamptons. <laughs> what got you the bug? What what were the first movies that you saw and were like, that's what I want to do? I never wanted to do. My two greatest pleasures were reading and and watching movies, and doing this has ruined both for me. <laughs> oh no. I don't know. I was always different. You know, I, there was nobody like me that I grew up with. I'm sure you guys can say the same thing. Nobody was interested in what I was interested in. You were the evil Ed of your group? Well, I, I lived either in the library or, or in the movie house. Sure. You know, I mean, I mean, I was, I was insane. I, I drove once 60 miles or something like that to catch Sergio Leone's Duck You Sucker. Oh you yeah, know, because full of dynamite. I was so in love. Well, I, yeah, because I was so in love with Leone. But I mean, oh, people wow. thought I was mad. You know, can you imagine that from Highland, New York? I mean, you know. They, they, so anyway, so I was like the only guy who was interested, you know, in in, in film, but also story. There was no way to get there from. I didn't know anybody, you know. So I. I ended up meeting a drama teacher. His claim to fame was that he had discovered Ernie Kovacs in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he became a friend, and he thought maybe I could be an actor because nobody knew how to make, how to get into 
movies in those days. And this, this, believe it or not, was before film schools, okay? So he got me a job during the summer of my 16th birthday, which means that I was 15 when I started apprenticing at Bucks County Playhouse in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I was surrounded with actors and directors in some cases for the productions. But what they did was they told me about all these acting classes in New York. And I wasn't particularly interested in being an actor, but there was no other way into it. So I was working for my father, Clerkman, and on the weekends, I would take the New York Central in for acting classes on Saturday. I mean, I was really young. I, I was, I cry, I wasn't in college yet, so I was still in high school. So I learned about acting and the good acting schools then. So anyway, what I did is I somehow, I got myself in the Northwestern University into the theater school with Alvina Krauss, who at that time was the famous teacher at Northwestern. And I spent a year there, and then I went to New York City, and I got an agent, and I was sent out, and I started to work as an actor, and I got a seven-year contract at Warner Brothers. And I was signed by Jack Warner himself. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I had to go to court to sign the contract because I was underage <laughs> out here in L.A. And, and I was in a motel in Burbank when JFK was, 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 was assassinated under contract to Warner Brothers. That was when the studio system was crumbling. They had, they had gone from movies to television, and they were producing television series on mass, especially a lot of Westerns. And I got in one of the last seven year contracts when they still had a big television business going. The sets were still standing from My Fair Lady. And I walked those sets on the soundstage. It was the biggest soundstage at Warner Brothers. Then after that, the, the business model fell apart and they let all their contract players and I went back to New York and I, I just started working as an actor. But I had never wanted to be an actor in the first place. Well, that's like one of the coolest things that we found about researching you is you just keep doing more and more stuff and bigger and bigger and bigger stuff. And if you're not acting, you're directing. If you're not directing, you're writing. If you're not writing, you're writing and directing. So we want to jump around here a bit. But let's let's go forward a little bit to 88 when you uh, wrote the screenplay and directed Child's Play. Um Child's Play is the killer doll movie, right? Even people who haven't seen it know what it is. It is the epitome of the killer doll movie. When you started getting into that movie, did you think, I have a chance here to create you know, the epicenter of this, or were you just trying to make a good movie? I'd written a brilliant script. You know, I mean, that was all that I cared about. Mm -hmm. I had come off of Fright Night, and I was very hot as a director. I was fascinated with, Number one, with, with the dolls, they were coming out with their first computer chips and dolls. And the My Buddy doll was a sensation <laughs> at the time. You guys will remember because you're that age. I had one. Yeah. Okay. but It did not walk around or kill people. No, but it, <laughs> but it could say different things. You never knew what it was going to say because that microchip inside had a, had a ton of, of different, you know, one-liners on it. And 
before that, you know, the doll, you'd lay the doll down as it would say, I want to pee or I want to go to sleep. And that was it. Mm-hmm. But the minute you started to see what, what, what dolls with a computer chip in them can do, it wasn't that hard to think of them talking and being alive. Okay. Right. And the, I don't know, it just fascinated me that and one of my favorite sequences that I'd ever seen was Trilogy of Terror. Sure. Which, believe it or not, was a TV movie, I think, in 1968. And there was an episode written by Richard Matheson called Prey. And it starred, uh, I think they all did, uh, uh, Karen Black. Mm -hmm. And Dan Curtis directed. Anyway, for those who've seen it, it was a four-parter, Trilogy of Terror, I think. And the last episode was Prey. And it was this little, I don't know, foot 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 high wooden doll like uh, totem, and the idea was that that she put it down on a table after buying it from some street vendor, and the chain fell off the waist. The doll came alive. It had a spear, and it chases her all over the apartment. Yeah, it's terrifying. She puts it in a suitcase and it's stabbing That's through right. the suitcase. Yeah, absolutely. Just terrific. But not only was it terrifying, what he did, what Curtis did, was he took and put up a, a 16, I think an IMO, one of those World War II 35 mil cameras, I think. He put it on a, on a skateboard mm-hmm. and he chased after Karen Black oh, at, okay. the, at the height of the doll. For the POV shots? Yeah, that's, it was a moving POV. This was just before steady cams. Mm-hmm. And then you got to remember in 80 or 81, the shining came out and yeah. that, that blew my mind in terms of steady cam. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was the first time. And then they, then they developed the low boy dance for, uh, the steady cam where you could put the steady cam down about two, three feet off the floor. Mm-hmm. And so now you had a way of doing a moving point of view that was like doll, doll size moving point of view. And I saw that. And the technical possibilities of doing a killer doll movie, it was possible technically for the first time. And, but I knew also that in order to have it work, I'd have to have the doll chase somebody. So what I had in my head was that whenever the doll got to, couldn't do things or got the puppetry wasn't available or the doll couldn't move or whatever, As long as I had the doll chasing its intended victim and I could cut to a moving point of view, then I could cut back to a tight close-up of the doll and his face, I had a visual sequence that would work. Sure. And I knew knew that from Prey. When you're working on this, I know it takes a lot of puppeteers and a lot of people behind the scenes to make the Chucky doll move and react. When you're shooting this, did did you know it was going to work or were there moments where you just see like these eight people puppeteering and and you're just like, man, is this going to look the way I want? Or did the whole time, did you know that it was going to work while you were shooting it? Try 11 or 12 people. I can't remember now. I've got the photos somewhere. TH Terror Time, which is my website, has a store. And we're, we're in the process of putting together a picture book, a photo book of production stills from Child's Play that nobody's seen, but it's heavy on how it was done, the puppeteering. 
Oh, wow. So, no, I didn't. I No, uh, Aaron, I didn't know any of it was going to work. Wow. It was, it was insane to even try this. Yeah. I mean, it, it had never been tried. And you got to remember, I was worried. I had gone and I had tried to work. I, Jesus, you, you try to be political in this business, you know? The, uh, the, the original script written by uh, Don Mancini had no bad guy in it. It had no Charles Lee Ray. It didn't have, it didn't have any visual sequences which were structured in such a way that, that it could be done. It didn't lend itself to being shot or produced in a way that would give you a chance of having success. Uh, all you had to do was look at the movies that were being made at the time and how terrible they were. Leprechaun, Puppet Master. I can't remember. <laughs> you, you guys can look them up, but you had, sure. a whole, you had a whole slew of those kinds of things that didn't work. The closest thing that worked was Sean Connery's first film. Oh, I know what you're talking yes. about, but I don't remember the name. And, yeah, yeah. And they did forced perspective for a lot of that. Sure. They used the little person in a, in, a, in a leprechaun outfit, and then they used forced perspective. Or they changed the size of the set, mm -hmm. you know, for, for the little person. So that was, that was the best film that, that, that I was aware of at the time, dealing with dolls or leprechauns sure. or small people. I mainly felt brave enough to do it because of the work in uh, Prey, uh, Trilogy of Terror, and also The Shining. Because, I mean, that's all the goddamn Shining is, is, is steady cam tracking shot. Sure, yeah, it, yeah. It's more than that, but that's what you remember, or at least what I remembered. Now, when you do, when you walk into this movie and you're doing pre-pro, you have Kevin Yeager and his team getting ready to do the effects. How much of what we end up seeing Chucky do in the movie was there from, let's say, storyboards as opposed to, you know, you, you, when you hear stories of Jaws, they say so much of the way that narrative was told was because the shark was or was not working that day. Is any of that true with Child's Play and you guys when you were doing that? Did that puppet pretty much do what you needed it to do most of the time? Or were there times where you're like, all right, like you said before, I got to shoot a POV instead of a medium shot because the puppet's not doing what I needed to do? Or vice versa, where, you know, did the puppet ever come in and blow you away? And you're like, oh, man, we have to shoot some extra stuff of that. All of that. Okay. <laughs> there was, there, no, it was make it up as you go along. Mm -hmm. Because you get there and things that you thought were going to work didn't work. And things that you'd never thought of worked but you didn't know you didn't know until you cut it together mm. i made all kinds of mistakes trying to, to figure it out what i had learned i think with uh with fright night was that eventually you have to have shots which are hey mom look no wires sure you know so my 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 problem was always where do i find the shots that that can sell the illusion because if the story's strong enough and the script I'd written was strong enough, the story was really strong. Mm -hmm. I knew the audience would go with the willing suspension of disbelief if I gave them something to hang their, their illusion on. And also if I didn't do anything that was so stupid, right. it, it knocked them out of, the, out of the, the, the illusion. And so what it turned out to be, the mistakes I made, I pushed too hard for... Well, hey, look, mom, no wire shot. I probably wasted time and money. I, what I did is I built the setup about 
four or five feet off the ground. Mm -hmm. And I had the puppeteers underneath. And I drilled shots right behind Chucky, like in the hallway in the apartment. So the entire apartment was up on up on stilts, the uh, Karen Barkley's apartment. And I drilled holes behind the doll. I ran all the wires up behind the doll hidden by his body. Mm -hmm. And then I took and I, I shot down on the doll, but in such a way to hide all the wires. I had shots over Karen on the doll, then just a single on the doll back on Karen. But the over Karen tying her in with the doll down on the doll with the wires hidden really made the illusion work. But the other thing I did was I took Ed Gale as a small person to sure. whom I will always be indebted because he was a real trooper and brave. And I had he, I had uh, Ed Gale standing in for Chucky in, in large sets. And sometimes that worked brilliantly, which like when they set him afire and he, he kicks his way out of the, yeah, the grate the fireplace, at the fireplace yeah. and comes out. That's Ed Gale in an enlarged set. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he's wearing a breathing device that's hidden beneath the, uh, the mask of Chucky. And that works like hell. Contra. I also shot on an oversized set a scene between Chucky and the the voodoo doctor in his kitchen. That's yeah. one of my favorite scenes of that entire movie. And there's a lot of them, but that's probably number one. What I found when I cut that together was a much longer scene and I had to cut it down. Because mm -hmm. although Ed was just terrific, the movement, the the difference in the movement between Ed and the puppet were very, very different. Sure. And I can't explain why, but the puppet movement somehow made it more believable for the audience than having Ed in an overbuilt set in the Chuck cost, Chucky costume blew, uh, disturbed the, the illusion mm -hmm. that it was a doll. The movements were too fluid, and you could tell it was a human being. So I had to cut down on the on the dramatic stuff with Ed, with Ed mm -hmm. and I had to, to use more of the doll. But this was all, all kinds of things that I discovered in cutting and, and previewing. When I was shooting, I didn't know what was going to work. I, I had to go with what my eye was telling me, and I was constantly thinking of other backups. I would be thinking of shooting a scene, and I was thinking, well, if this didn't work, I'll have this, and if that doesn't work, I'll have that. So sometimes I had three different ways of cutting a scene to try to maintain the illusion that, that Chucky was a doll and, and alive. In other words, Aaron, it was, it was, it was hellacious, <laughs> and we didn't know what we were doing. And, of course, we got back in L.A., and the studio started to beat the hell out of me for going oh. over. It was the third administration, by the way. I started with one administration who were behind the oh, film. Wow. And I ended up with the third administration who could give a who could have given a damn and just wanted to shut down because it was costing them too much money. And I ended up with a TV guy who ran UA for five minutes. This was when Kirk <laughs> Krikorian was shoving people in and out of UA and MGM trying to figure out how to suck more money out. Oh wow. Yeah, Kirk Krikorian, you know, single handedly destroyed MGM, the greatest studio in, in Hollywood by selling and reselling and reselling it. And the money that he gutted out of MGM went to the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. So, yeah. you know, 
I mean, I, I have stories. I mean, I, the last day that MGM was open, they walked the lion out the front gates, and I was there, and I was there with my wife and Roddy McDowell. And Roddy and I had walked MGM for like two or three days before it was finally shut down. And I can't, I wish that I'd recorded it. He knew what movies were shot on every stage. He knew where people were having assignations, you know, to have, you know, to have love affairs on, you know, on the lot. We went to the library and the librarian was in tears and dumping books and production photos into the garbage and hauling them away. That's when Debbie Reynolds went down and, and bought all the costumes for $1.95. Oh, man. You know, and I was just, I don't know, I was just too young. You know, when you're younger and you're working all the time, all you're thinking about is, is yourself and the next job. For sure. You know, yeah. and that there's that forward rush, and you're not thinking about any, you, you have no affection for the, for the for the history of the business. Roddy told me this. Hollywood has no history. Roddy really influenced me a lot into this because Roddy was a walking, was an oral history of Hollywood, was Roddy. And he used to go out to the, to the motion picture home and he would hang out with the silent movie stars and he would get them to talk to him about the movies they'd made, the silence. And he knew every silent movie. And I think The Parade Goes By by Browning or whatever his name was, was probably about the only contact I had with silent movies. One of my favorite scenes in Chucky, when you're talking about building that suspense and building these moments, I mean, the battery scene alone is one of these excellent moments, like masterclass moments of of suspense because she's the realization that maybe the doll is alive when she looks for the batteries that that moment was so good now was that scripted that way was that something that you came up with or was that something that came out of a a necessity my memory is and i could be wrong because it's been so long ago that was the one moment i used from a from a john lafia draft of it wasn't called child's play what was it called blood buddy he'd done a rewrite for another director I was on it. I couldn't get a script out of the goddamn thing. There was the the problem was you know, this is where you get into you know you can't run anybody down, run anybody up. Everybody's trying to trying to stay alive and do something halfway good. There was no Charles Lee Ray. There was no antagonist in the Mancini script. It had it had no tension, no drive, and no suspense. And I couldn't solve it. I left and I went on and made uh, Fatal Beauty. And the guy who directed the stepfather came in and took it over. And he brought that writer in, Lafia. And they were struggling to do something with it. You could tell it when, it, when they, were, they were struggling to get some narrative in it and to get some suspense. And I don't know, the one moment I remember in it, I think, I think, was the batteries dropping out. But maybe not. I can't remember. Anyway, that sequence... It certainly didn't have anything that, that, that I did because that's an eight-minute visual set piece, Aaron, that yeah. from, from the moment she comes back from the police station, she goes to throw the good guy box away, the batteries fall out. That leads 
to her then starting to wonder about Chucky. And she goes in and she gets the doll in the living room. She opens the back of the thing and there are no batteries in there. Then I have the head duo 180, which is from The Exorcist. Yeah, The Exorcist moment. And she's absolutely terrified, and she drops it. And it rolls under the couch. You have no idea what I went through to try to have that goddamn doll roll under the couch. <laughs> you know? No, but I mean, I... Was that a vertical set? Well, what I did finally is I went to an incline. Mm. But first what I tried to do was drop it and use fishing line to pull it under the couch. But it, it didn't look right, you know. Right. It, this, so this is what I'm saying. You're learning it as as you go. So what I did is I took and I put the floor on a 45 degree tilt, and then I put the couch on a on a tilt at the bottom, and we dropped the doll, and it landed right in front of the couch and went right under the couch because the floor was on a 45 degree incline. But you know, I adjusted the camera for that, so you read it as a straight drop. Sure. But that's how that's done. Then it goes to her getting down on her knees and looking under the couch. This is all me now. And that, there's nothing more vulnerable. You know you know the doll's alive, but she doesn't. And that's, Hitch, that's Hitchcock's great line about, you know, you put some dynamite under the kitchen table and the audience knows, but the people on screen don't. Mm -hmm. And that that's the same thing at work in child's play. And finally, she can't get anything out of the doll. And she threatens to throw it in the fireplace. And then I think it's a shot, cowboy shot frame from the waist up on, on her and Chucky. And Chucky comes alive. And that goes all the way through the fight in the living room to the doll running out to her chasing the doll down the stairs in the elevator and then out the front door in front of the building. It's an eight-minute visual set piece. There's it's hardly awesome. any dialogue. It's all visual. Right, right. And that's what Mr. Hitchcock used to say was was what film was. Oh, moving, it's, moving. It's, it really is just such a great moment. When, when Child's Play comes out, what was the initial reaction? Were people into it, or did it get a, a, a weird response because it's about a doll? Like, what, what was its initial reaction? I don't, I don't think I've ever had a film that has tested as strongly as Child's Play did from the first preview. You could, awesome. you could see that huge chunks of it worked. Mm. You could also see that other chunks of it did not. In that sense, by that I mean I had played, it's really about a mother trying to save, you know, try to save her little son and hold the family together. Right. And, and there's a lot of pathos in there. But what I discovered was the audience didn't want to sit through a lot of a mother trying to get her little boy out of out of jail, but they wanted to see that fucking doll kill people. What happened was also <laughs> the, the studio, which which was rudderless at that point, the there was nobody there. It was literally falling apart, and Gregorian was selling it as we as we were in post. I had a fight argument with the guy who was head of marketing his son became a head of marketing and he they kept doing the four quadrants thing you know you know half the audience over 40 half the audience under 40 mm -hmm. well all you had to do was listen you could tell everybody under 40 was wildly enthusiastic and everybody over 40 didn't get it so as i as i pushed them and the audience got younger and younger for the testing the scores went up and up and up 
You just couldn't. You just couldn't miss it. It was, it was a, it was a huge m- movie of borning, you know, being born sure. through the testing, and the testing were the, the just cleaning up the doll, and also keeping it moving. I think that the movie's comparatively short. What is it like, 92, 94 minutes? Mm-hmm. The one who gave a brilliant performance that isn't there is Catherine Hicks. I mean, she really played the hell out of the mother. But the yeah. somehow keeping the long dialogue scenes didn't work as much as moving it along. But the movie with the movie was always a hit. It was never expected to be a hit. I mean, God knows, you know, you know, UA under its third administration, we I had to rewrite the last four or five pages over a weekend because the pressure from the from the, from oh, the wow. studio was so great to cut costs. They told me to cut the they wanted me to cut Chucky in the third act. <laughs> and I said, are you crazy? No Chucky, no mood. Sure. But there I was. They wouldn't uh, give me any more money to continue. And there were, there were just horrendous technical problems. But it's, it's nobody's fault. Everybody was doing the best they could. And everybody was learning as they go. And you had puppeteers under the, under the set, literally under the floor. They were on TV screens. The TV screens then gave you a reverse image. So the image was never, you know, camera right, camera right. Oh. Camera right was really camera left. Oh, no. That's, oh, that's yeah. ridiculous. Ruby and I have both puppeteered before, and I know I've used a monitor before, and I can only imagine how hard it would be Horrible. with that extra Horrible. flip on that access. Wow. Well, also, what that, that meant that I couldn't get an eye line. Sure. Even getting an eye line out of the doll was hell. So wow. all, I, all I could do was sit there, turn the camera on, and 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 keep working and telling the puppeteers beneath whether it was good or not. But you know, but it it wasn't sure. anybody's. It was nobody's fault. It was just it was the way it was. That's amazing. You know, and it, it's funny because one thing I wanted to hit on before we move on to the next movie was. You think of Chucky, you think of Child's Play, you know that there's a lot of technical aspect, you know there's a lot of practical effects, and if anyone's ever walked by a movie set before, you know that that is difficult and complicated. But something that I think, at least in the final film, doesn't even come across as an issue, it almost is like you don't realize it, but pretty much I think your main human protagonist is is Andy, the little boy. And I think that boy did an amazing job as an actor. And I got to give you extra credit as a director, not only for making this amazing practical effects movie, but one of your main leads was a little boy who so much of that movie rides on him. And I think it's important. My absolute favorite, I call it a horror movie, but it's more of a thriller. But my favorite scary movie is Night of the Hunter with Robert Meacham. And part of the reason that that is terrifying is because he's menacing those children the whole movie. And that's what's happening here even more so than when he tries to kill Chris Sarandon or anything like that, he's menacing this child. And I think you do an amazing job of, of, of putting that child in peril and making the audience afraid for him, you know? Can you imagine trying to do that today? No, I you wouldn't be you, able to. You wouldn't be able to. You wouldn't be able no to way. get it done. Well, I mean, look at, look at Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't make Cloak and Dagger today with, 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 with Henry Thomas as a sure. little boy. Back when I made Cloak and Dagger, the only stricture was... The only prohibition was you couldn't put a gun right to a kid's head. <laughs> that was all. That was <laughs> all you weren't able to do. Oh, that's wow. the only thing you weren't able to do. Well, think about it. Trilogy of Terror in 1968 on ABC, I think. 
you couldn't you couldn't have got that on TV by 1970 or 71. Sure. You know, so I mean, all you're looking at is a combination of growing standards and practices, which essentially straightjacket whatever's going on creatively. And then at the same time, other things are going totally on. As the culture changes, what you can do and what you can't do changes with it. Sure, sure. And some of it's really stupid and some of it's good and, you know, who knows. But anyway, all those films were made in the two minutes between one kind of censorship or another kind of censorship. Yes, and then and Alex Vincent was brilliant and he never acted. That was Alex. Yeah, he did. I mean, just an amazing job. And, you know, it's funny. You, well, not funny. You just have so many talents as a writer, as a director, as an actor yourself. And I think all those things probably symbiotically work to make you the best writer you could be, the best director you could be. I wrote Child's Play to be directed with a doll that I didn't know whether I could make it work or not. Okay. And so, therefore, what I did is I structured the, the set pieces, the action, so I could go to points of view the moving points of view to cover myself. See, that's such a smart way to approach that, though. Like, I got to give you amazing hats off for that. That's, I mean, that's a really smart way to approach that. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, in retrospect, yes, thank you. <laughs> I mean, but the, 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 certainly as I sat there with things not working, I thought I was an idiot forever having gotten into it. <laughs> I don't know why, but I knew there was something in the culture that would want to see that. Mm-hmm. Called the child's play. It was obviously Chucky was the star, but who the fuck knew what Chucky, who Chucky was? Right. So you couldn't call it Chucky. So I called it child's play because that's what it was. And there's weight to that movie. I mean, the, 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 the last ending freeze frame on the little boy and Alex, as he closed the door, closes the door where they've just killed the doll. Well, he's going to be haunted by that doll for the rest of his life. Sure. And, you know, and I thought about that because I've seen Alex now as an adult at a couple of these horror conventions. And by God, his life has become cosplay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you say, my God, you know, and I got a lot of this from Roddy McDowell, who talked extensively about what it was like being a child growing up within the studio system. What I got from from Roddy was that. Some kids came out of it okay, and a lot of kids didn't. Sure, yeah, yeah. I remember Roddy saying that the hardest thing that he'd ever done was get a career going after being a child star and being able to graduate to being a an adult star, yeah. which was almost impossible because the, 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 the stories, the tragic stories surrounding child actors. Yeah. He was still terrified at 50-some years old about never working again. It's really interesting, you know, whatever the, the dynamics there. Roddy McDowell plays such a great character in Fright Night as Peter Vincent, which is kind of a Peter Cushing, Vincent Price sort of amalgamation. He's, he's one of the, the, the bright points of that movie, playing against all the awesome child actors. But putting that character in a movie, were you inspired by late night movie hosts, like horror movie hosts, to get that character into the script? Yes, yes, that's my childhood. Yeah. That, that's what Fright Night is my love letter to the horror genre. But it's my love letter from somebody who grew up watching this, watching AIP and Hammer in the late 50s through the 60s. You know, I mean, uh, that was the kind of horror that I loved. And then, of course, it all changed when I was 
an adult and starting out and getting a career going, and it all turned into slasher pictures. Dick Clark with Black Hollow, Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first one, wasn't it? It was. It, it's touted as one of the first. Yeah, for sure. and then yeah. then then you know you had you had uh, Halloween, but Halloween was just a. What John did was he took a Psycho, and commercialized it. You know, he took yeah. psych- oh, sure. he took Psycho and made a piece of shit called Halloween. Wow, those are some strong words. Well, there. yeah, but 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 compared compare Halloween to the character. Sure. The tale in Psycho. Sure. You know, I mean, so that they're, they're but they're they're both working on on the slasher. They're both working on a, a psychopathic killer out there. Right. Halloween took it another step. Then Sean Cunningham took around, took it, took and went with Friday the Thirteenth and ripped off Halloween. Right. And did an even worse version of Halloween. Right. <laughs> At least he admits that. Which made a gazillion dollars. No, I mean, no. There, there, there is no criticism from me to any of these people, but uh, because everybody's just trying to get a job and stay alive and, and, and learn their craft. But that's sort of the history, and that's what was dominant when I wrote Fright Night. And I wrote Fright Night in reaction to all to all the god-awful slasher movies that were out there, or at least what I thought were terrible at the time. And I came up with the idea of Fright Night when I was writing Cloak and Dagger. And Cloak and Dagger, is ostensibly, was a remake of The Window, which is Cornell Woolrich's juvenile version of Rear Window. Mm-hmm. And that was the Boy Who Cried Wolf story. And that didn't play. So I wrote an original script called Cloak and Dagger. I was working with the director, Richard Franklin, who's no longer with us, but to whom I owe a huge debt. Because Richard taught me about film and taught me about Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford specifically. From Richard, I got everything that they ever taught in graduate school at USC about film and visual set pieces. And that's what I got from Richard Franklin. Anyway, when I was writing Cloak and Dagger, I said, well, if you really want to have something that that works in today's market for a kid looking out the window and seeing something going on in the house next door, you'd have a horror fan look out the window and see a vampire chomping down on somebody next door. And everybody thought I was nuts. (laughs) Everybody thought I was crazy. And Richard did. The people at Universal did. I couldn't sell the idea to save my life. And yet, I thought it was a sensational concept. So I walked around, I don't know, six months, nine months, a year, with that inside of me. And I could not, I couldn't get anybody believing me, you know, thinking that. And then suddenly, I had the idea for Peter Vincent. And that's because I had grown up watching the Friday Night Frights, which the only place you could watch a horror film in Austin, New York, in 1960 was at 11 o'clock on Friday night on the independent channel where they would show some absolutely ghastly horror film. They, you know, but that, that way AIP and Hammer and just, and then really got awful stuff. And that's where I became a horror fan, you know, from, from growing up watching, watching that stuff. And you couldn't have been any more amazed than I was, but that, I would. I always thought of of horror hosts, Sven Gulli, you know, Elvira. Sammy defen- Terry, Elvira. There you go. I mean, there were there were there were a dozen of them, but then they all went Zachary. away. Yeah, that. Thank you, Stagger <laughs> Lee. Yes, and but they all went away during my. By the time 
I got out of high school, they were starting to die off. The horror hosts on the once-a-week horror movies on public television. The minute I thought of Peter Vincent, I couldn't wait to get home fast enough and write the goddamn script and write the story. And I don't think I've ever had as much fun writing a movie as I had writing Fright Night because I was giggling half the time, if not most of the time, because there was something... There's something very funny about the idea of a teenage horror fan becoming convinced that his next-door neighbor is a vampire. And nobody's going to believe him except the next-door neighbor, who is a vampire. And I I just (laughs) thought that that was lovely. Anyway, I wrote the script, and by that point, I was so hot in town as as a writer that my reputation convinced Guy McElwain, who was running Columbia at the time, to take a chance on me. And that's how, and, and, and I was championed by, uh, by John Byers, B-Y-E-R-S. I don't know what's happened to him. Hello, John. I hope you're still around. But John championed Fright Night, and Guy McElwain went for it. And it was blessed. The whole thing was blessed. I was blessed because Columbia didn't want to lose the team that had made Ghostbusters. Right. And so what they did is they gave me Richard Edlin. So Richard Edlin went from the most expensive film that Columbia had made in years, Ghostbusters, to their, to their cheapest little film on, uh, on their release list in 1984 or 85 called Fright Night. But I got the best people for, in-cam- for, for effects that were then extant in Hollywood. And mainly it, it's in-camera effects, but there is there are some great match shots there too. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. one of the like you said. There's a couple things here. That movie is great for effects across the board. I'll get to that in a second. But uh, the fact that you were so excited to make it that comes across as a fan. You know, Aaron and I are also fans of the horror genre. We know those shows that inspired yeah. you to yeah. write that. Yeah. So when we watch it. That's the like we understand the language that you wrote that love letter in. And we actually just interviewed Steve Johnson, who did some of the effects on that movie. And one thing that he said was he feels when he's excited about a project, that comes across in whatever it is he's working on. And then the audience sees that. How can they not be excited? And I think that what you just said about how you felt about Fright Night is certainly a great example of that, right? Your heart, your love went into that. Yeah. And it comes yeah. across on yeah. the celluloid, yeah. you know? And I think like Everybody, I mean, Rumi and I are diehard Evil Ed type kids. We are Evil Ed. We, we're going to like that movie regardless. But like a lot of people love that movie that has a special place in the canon of horror, you know? Yeah, just amazing. Pinch me. <laughs> On Friday night, I went to the Vista Theater in L.A. They had a, a screening of a child's play. And I put my hands in concrete outside the theater this is this is down towards uh, Los Feliz, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. it was built like in 1927. It's it's sort of the a poor man's version of the of the really Rococo Egyptian theater in on Hollywood Boulevard. It still all works, you know. I mean, they talk about three movies. They talk about Fright Night, Child's Play, and Psycho Two. Seem to be the, the the my big three. Well, Steve Johnson, who we just talked with, told us specifically to ask you about the temp. He said that there is a an uncut version that exists with all these really graphic, gratuitous things that he loved that he says is not on the DVD or was not on the re- original release. So we need to push for that to get a, an unrated, he said. 
the the temp is a train wreck. The temp the temp train wrecked me emotionally and and as a movie. Yes, I had mm-hmm. done everything with in camera effects. Mm-hmm. I had great stuff, and the studio just was a nightmare. And it, it it they made me cut all of them out. They changed the ending at the end. It was a disaster. And once again, it was a and you know you, you you're around for a while. It's hard to blame anybody. Sure, yeah, because everybody's you know stabbing you in the back, and they're all doing it covertly, so you don't know who. And it, it wasn't personal. It, it scored on the previews. I think it was right in the middle. So it wasn't an obvious hit and it wasn't an obvious failure. Mm-hmm. But by the time they got through with it, it was just a total, total, total mess and never what I directed or intended. I want to see that original. I want to see your cut. Well, I wish I wish we could. The ending never worked. It needed it needed to be to be cleaned up. It needed some reshoots. It didn't happen. They put a different ending on it. That goes to my line about, you know, you, you the, the one thing you can always count on is that people that you work with in Hollywood are creatively disadvantaged, especially if they're working for the studio. Sure. And you never, you never know what the politics are because it's, it's, it's too covert a game and you really have to be in that world. And I never have, but no, there were great, great practical effects in the temp. None of which are in the movie. One more thing that I wanted to bring up when, when you're working with Roddy McDowell on Fright Night is, is I heard a story where he actually introduced you to Vincent Price. Is that true? Yeah, he the, the, the had me over for dinner at his house, and it was Vincent and his wife. And the reason that I, that I didn't use Vincent was because his health was failing. I originally wanted Vincent Price. Yeah. And, and then I got into casting, and the, the and uh, the casting director also great and her name's out of my head right now uh told me that his health was not good enough and then i think after we'd done the movie roddy invited me over for dinner and it was with was Vin, vincent price and i think his wife's name was coral brown i'm not sure i think so anyway it was it was just an absolutely lovely evening you know i think fellas back to all the people i've met and worked with I should have had my autograph book out and I, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I mean, I think of all the, I think of all the movie props that I didn't bother with the, you know, the, 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 the people that I meant that I could have gotten, that I should have gotten autographs from or pictures with or, or, or written down their stories because every one of one thing that Hollywood's good at among the creative classes or telling stories, rock on tours. Do you really want brilliance as a rock on tour? Talk to John Landis. He's yeah. just just about the, one of the best evenings I ever had was <laughs> listening to him and to him and Tarantino and Landis going at it, trying to one up one up each other for trivia. Wow. I got it. One of the best evenings I ever had. What's the situation there? How did that evening happen? Well, I, I can't I think it was a Masters of Horror, but I'm not sure. One of those dinners. The other person that really had that depth of knowledge was Anthony Perkins. Tony could do that. Tony, I knew every director. I knew every actor that had been in any movie. This was before you started to have direct to DVDs. I, I, I really, I think, I, I think I, I felt like I'd seen every sound movie and a ton of silent movies. Mm-hmm. But then they started to make direct to DVDs and forget about it. Yeah. You got buried beneath this wave of shit. 
<laughs> anyway, there's so many stories that I wish that I'd written down and kept. Roddy was the one who should have written the autobiography. And Roddy kept saying, I really do know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> and I cannot. He would not write his autobiography because he really did know. Wow. Can we go into Psycho real quick? Because I'd love to talk about that. You compared Psycho to Halloween, and Psycho is probably tied with Exorcist for my second favorite ever. There's just so much to it. You were contracted to write Psycho 2, which right. those are pretty big shoes to fill. I'd be really, I'd be really concerned about going after the first one. Can you tell well, us what that process was well, like? Psycho, Psycho, the first one is what, is what, I don't want to say it changed my life, sure. but it's certainly when I saw that, and I was like a 10, 11, 12. Yeah. I, I watched it between my fingers hiding in my seat with my jacket over my head. I mean, that, that was the scary. I'd never seen anything like that before. But what that made me aware of, I wasn't aware of editing or cutting until oh, okay. I saw Psycho. And all of a sudden, I realized that those pieces of film have been put together and that, that somebody was thinking all that out before mm -hmm. that i sort of thought of it like hammer you know you'd have a wide you'd have a wide shot heavily saturated going for a two shot two overs maybe maybe one single mm -hmm. hardly ever a, an insert of any kind right i mean so that was sort of proceeding march filmmaking right well psycho changed that it was a whole new way of filmmaking it seemed like at the time i i mean i know that, that hitchcock had been doing that for 30 years even though he'd never done it quite like that. So you get the call. We, Tom, we want you to write Psycho 2, this movie that you just said kind of changed your life, at least broaden your horizons on filmmaking. We want you to create the sequel. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, nobody wanted the job. Sure. I mean, you, all you could have was somebody who was young and untested because nobody else was going to be stupid enough to take it. Right. <laughs> that was one. because you, you, you knew you were walking into a into a critical meat grinder mm -hmm. you knew you were going to get savaged critically and that was back when critics still meant something sure because you had a limited number of newspapers and you know only three networks that was a cable movie if you look on the production credits you'll see oak communications mm -hmm. which was like the first cable company in uh in san diego so universal thought it was a cable movie there was no psycho legacy there was no, there had been no psycho movies. Nobody had ever done anything with the first one. And I knew, and Richard agreed with me, that the only chance we had to become a feature film was to get Tony Perkins back to play Norman. Mm -hmm. So I had to write a script that it would, would appeal enough to really, to really what was a world-class actor. I mean, Tony Perkins was, was brilliant. I don't know if I liked him, but I sure as hell admired him. Sure. You know, I yeah. mean, he was really brilliant. He's got to be one of, if not the smartest actor I ever worked with. But I had to get him back to play the part to be able to get a theatrical, I hoped. Mm -hmm. And so I had to write a character for him. And what I did was I took and I, I made Norman sympathetic. He was a poor guy, 30 years in his, 22 years in an institution, gets out. He's trying desperately to hold on to his sanity while he's being tortured by the, by the relatives of his dead victims, 
who want revenge. And that set up a real character arc for him. Yeah. Because all throughout that movie, Tony never kills anyone ever. Right, right. Until the very end Mm -hmm. when he kills his mother. But otherwise, he's the innocent. And it was strong enough as an acting script to get Tony to say yes. And Universal still didn't realize they had a feature film on their hands. And then they put out a press release saying that Tony Perkins was going to reprise Norman from Psycho. And the entire world went crazy. Sure. And then Universal all of a sudden had a theatrical summer release. See, now that's really interesting. And it came out in 83. When you were working on your script, had Psycho 2, the Robert Block novel, come out yet? Yeah, the, the novel was out. And I did a panel afterwards with uh, at the WGA with Robert Block. The book had come out. Don't ask me why. <laughs> Robert Block kills off Norman in the first 30 pages of the book. Right. And so the book was just totally unusable. The book has nothing, to, it has nothing to do with what you wrote. It's a nothing whole like movie. All. They're making a psycho movie. It's like self-reflexive and meta in that perspective. And then people start getting killed at the movie was, theater, was, at the movie it was, house. It was everything the public didn't want. Exactly, exactly. Now, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> I remember I had, I had admired Robert Block because he wrote so many of the amicus films. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he was a lovely man. And I remember being at that panel with him at the WGA and he criticized me for making it too gratuitously violent. Your movie? Yeah, Psycho 2. And of course he was totally right. I mean, the, the, the knife going through Vera Miles' throat in Psycho 2 mm-hmm. is a bow to the slasher genre, which was then at the top of the charts in terms of movies. Sure. We were afraid if we didn't have enough violence that the movie wouldn't be commercial enough to succeed. Mm -hmm. We were intimidated by what was then the dominant horror genre in Hollywood, which were the slasher films. And that's, that's why, but otherwise, you know, I mean, the story is the story. And I, I wrote that as an acting piece, mixing it together with visual set pieces and in camera violent effects. But I think that that's what I did on all of them. That's Fright Night, even though Fright Night Mm -hmm. stays fun all the way. I certainly did that with Child's Play. There are some terrific acting scenes in all those movies. I mean, where the actors have to act. Right. You can't have weak actors in my movies. It's happened. No, but, well. <laughs> but the, 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 the dramatic demands are, sure. are, are, are too strong. I never worked as hard in any script as I worked on Psycho 2. I think it is just a terrific script and a terrific movie. And Richard Franklin should be remembered for that because he directed a brilliant movie. Do you think directorially you would have done anything different if you had directed that? No. Oh, wow. That's the only movie I can say that with. That's I was huge. Not, I was not thrilled with, with Richard's direction of Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. He missed on that. Yeah. He didn't give it the full attention that he might have, but he sure gave full attention to Psycho 2. Okay. I mean, that we storyboarded that out. That's how I learned to storyboard while I was shooting it. We storyboarded out the effect sequences. That movie was planned out like a Hitchcock film. It was shot before it was shot. Sure. The storyboards were what we used. It wasn't like he deviated from the storyboards. Right, right. Yeah, that movie was just brilliant and wonderful from beginning to end. And God only knows, it happens very, very seldom. (laughs) For sure. Well, I mean, it comes across, though. Mm Mm-hmm. 
you've worked on so many really cool practical effects films and had some really great talent on your movies doing practical effects. People like Steve Johnson uh, and, and the Ghostbusters team on Fright Night. Do you have any other antidotes about practical effects and working with those in your movies? Yeah, don't forget Randy Cook. Yeah, oh, yeah. Randy Cook. Okay. Yeah, but and Kevin Yeager. Who was I mean, doing practical. Yeah, Kevin. God, there's so many. I think I think the the, the, the funniest story, and it'd be better if Steve Johnson told you, I was blocking that scene in the basement between Charlie and Amanda first, you know, Amy, and where she she says, why did you said you were going to save me? You didn't save me. And she turns away weeping, and Charlie starts for her. And then she turns around, and you see that horrid shark mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she goes for him. I that wasn't in the script. I oh. got I got that idea when I was blocking it out, and I was blocking it on a Friday night at the end of the day to shoot on Monday. Yeah. And I looked at her turn, and I said, "Oh my God, that's a that's a great place for a shock reveal." I had Steve Johnson make that on a wing and a prayer over the weekend. And as he tells the story, I told him not to worry about the workmanship too much because it would only be in the movie for a quick flash. And it turns out, of course, that it's the one sheet, you sure, know, yeah. the mouth. <laughs> you have it in this room right now. There's, I have it there's in multiple the images of and, it in yeah, here. Yeah, so, you know, so Steve saved me. But, I mean, yeah. he saved me overnight. And apparently the thing was very, very difficult to put in her mouth. Uh, you know, Amanda Burst tells me that. and. You know, but I mean, that's one of those things where a great thing does happen. There was a lot of that going on 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 Child's Play, too, with Kevin. I mean, I remember we were trying to, with the, we had all kinds of things set up for the attack in the living room after the doll comes alive, after she threatens to throw it in the fire. And there was a long gimbal for making the doll move behind the furniture as it makes its way towards the front door and runs out and she chases after it down the elevator. And there was a long gimbal and it didn't work. And I think finally what those shots of the, of the doll behind the furniture, behind the couch and everything, there's a puppeteer back there with one hand making the doll move for about two feet and then dropping it. But we had like a huge tens of thousands of dollar gimbal set up with the doll at the at the end of it and it was like on an arm but it was an arm that was operated by three or four guys mm-hmm. and it was elliptical so you couldn't make it go in a straight line it curved out i can't can't describe it oh. i have pictures that are in the picture book but we ended up with just one puppeteer behind the behind the furniture doing it there was a lot of that kind of thing you know where you you know where you you're going by a wing and a prayer, and then somebody steps in. Is what you said earlier when you when you came in, Matt. In effect, you can't stand around. Sure, yeah, yeah. Even if you don't have a clue how you're going to make it work, you you just got to get in there and do something. And I think Child's Play was really a lot that way. That was not true with Fright Night, because Fright Night those guys knew what would work mm-hmm. and what wouldn't. And they everything was planned out, and pretty generally, everything worked. So there must be a lesson in all this. Work with the best people you can find, I guess. There you go. 
I got a good question to finish up on here. I've seen some interviews where you have specifically said that you love horror fan. Yeah, I do. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Tell us why. Tell us where that feeling comes from. Is there any genre that's growing as much? Is Maybe the- superheroes, but that's a much smaller, quicker growth, I think. And I think that'll fa- fade out. Whereas I think horror, we, we have our niche. Don't you think? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And I am very bored with the Cape Crusaders, but everybody <laughs> seems to love them. But anyway, what's, what's happening is that that the horror genre is exploding. I think that that, that it crosses it over in the, in the tent poles now, mm-hmm. for good or bad. What makes horror fans so great is that, generally speaking, they're smart as hell. I mean, I, I talk to people like you guys that know more than I do. Well, I don't know about that. Well, no, <laughs> but I mean, but but you'll know more than I will, and I'll have forgotten. They're so goddamn smart. They're so into the genre. They have, they you, you can't play trivia with a real fan. They'll kill you. The, the, you know, I mean, I can't. I just it's it's a it's a extremely intelligent fandom. I mean, you would think they'd all be idiots, but you know, but but it's it's, it's the exact opposite. And I I think that maybe that's because horror because it's inexpensive comparatively to produce is the genre that reacts most quickly or reflects most quickly what is going on culturally. Okay. And so it, it's a very, very alive movement because it, it, it also comments on on social concerns, even though when it gets too heavy-handed, it drives me out of the theater. Sure. And also, horror is plastic. It can also be character-driven, and it can be a very, very high-class, high-brow, critical film at the same time well the babadook was terribly good yeah right you know yeah it's also growing and it's always been the genre that allowed young filmmakers to get in because it was cheap comparatively cheap to produce and you still see that happening for two seconds and don't tell this to the guy at universal but it's not corporatized but of course it is who's the guy at universal that, that's, that's churning him out by the dozen blumhouse that, that blumhouse, blumhouse. blumhouse yeah, is yeah. who i'm thinking of that'd be the most consistent the most consistently successful at this moment in time the purge and things like that but at the same time god i look around and i see a ton of independence I mean, a lot of them are not very good, but boy, you'll see talent in them, you know, and then mm-hmm. every now and then somebody pulls it all together. Look, it's, it's very, very, very hard, Matt and Aaron, to, to pull off a good film. Sure. You need a piece of luck. You need to have luck going on. You need to have everybody pulling together at the same time. And it's very, very, very hard to do. And it isn't just in the control of the writer-director, i.e. me. It isn't. The stars are sleeping together. She decides to sleep with someone else. He now hates her. I mean, you know, I, you, who knows? Right. You know, yeah. but all this crap is going on all the time. And you, every now, you, I've had it, I've had it where it's really helped and it's saved me. And I've had it where it's just destroyed me. So, you know, and of course, I'm on and off, too. You know, it depends on, you know, how am I getting along with my wife? Sure, you yeah. Know, you know, who the hell knows? But, I mean, so so you need all the... It's just very, very difficult to get everything going in the right direction to make a really good film. But horror is the most alive and interesting of the genres right now. 
out there to me anyway. But then I probably always felt that way. Sure. <laughs> well, Tom Holland, man, is, is a guy who luck has come and been in your movies at least three or four big, big times. I mean, you have created some staples of the genre that will be here long after all of us. Totally accidental. I mean, I don't, I had no idea. I mean, it's only about, I don't know. Rob Galuzzo showed up at my door. Horror fans will know who he is. Showed up at my door. He wanted to interview me, I guess, 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. I had no idea <laughs> before that that there was a growing world of horror fandom out there. I really didn't. I was so busy working. My memory is is that is that Fright Night, you know, got quite good uh, audience reactions in the previews. Mm -hmm. But it was not a guaranteed huge hit. And it went out, and I think it did very well. I know it blew out the theaters in Japan. It wasn't an enormous hit. Child's Play was an enormous hit. Right. And you knew it. You knew it from the first preview. I don't know which is highly, more highly thought of, Fright Night or Child's Play, in terms of critical estimation. It's arguable, you know, that all the, 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 the sequels and everything have, have diluted Child's Play. But no, I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. And it seemed to me, you know, you know, Psycho 2 was, I think, the number one movie in the summer of 1983. Can you imagine that now? That's amazing. Uh, like, what? But amazing. Oh, that's crazy. But, but my sense is, is that Psycho 2 fell out of the public memory for 20 yeah. years. I guess I can understand that. It just has such a big shadow to walk in. But when you revisit Psycho 2, and anyone listening, if you guys haven't seen this, even if you haven't seen this movie in a while, check it out because it holds up and it's it really is well done. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is is that you never know. You can't deliberately set out to, 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 to be great or brilliant or to have something last. Henry Farrell years ago, whatever happened to Baby Jane, told me this. He said, 20 years after it's out, somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, that was brilliant. And he was referring to, to whatever happened to Baby Jane. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it took him yeah. 20 years before. And it was when people started doing the musical on it that Henry wow. finally realized that he created a classic in the book. And everybody ends up broke except the movie studios. <laughs> I want to thank both you guys very much. I want to thank Dennis DeFran, our mutual friend. Uh, I have a website website called TH Terror Time, and it's got a store on it. Look at the store, the Terror Time store, because we're trying to get some material out that, that references these movies and a few others. You know, we're, we have a comic book coming, a Fright Night comic book. And I mean, literally, it's coming. It's being shipped, shipped over right now. That's amazing. You have a Fright Night coloring book on there. You have scripts. You have DVDs. You have Blu-rays. You actually have, if I'm not mistaken, you have the Fright Night region-free Blu-ray, which, in my opinion, is the best one out there. There are more rare coveted releases, but they don't have half. They don't even have a quarter of the special features that this one does. And it's I got to say, it's reasonably priced, too. It's yeah. my favorite <laughs> release of that movie. So check it out, guys. It's a really good story. And they got books. They have a whole bunch of stuff on there. I've got I've, I've also I've got my first publishing deal. Whoa. Yeah. The Cemetery Dance is the publisher. The, the novel's called The Boy. And I, I hope I don't think I'll get it out this year, but next year for sure. So I'm writing novels now, and I hope you'll be aware of them when they come out and buy and buy one or two and read them and see what you think. And God bless everybody out there. And for all those people who want to be filmmakers and everything, there are two ways to do it. 
One is you go watch movies, and the other way is you go out and you shoot them. And there isn't an excuse anymore not to go out and shoot a movie when you can do it on your iPhone. That's true. So you learn by doing. You learn by doing and you learn by watching the work of the people that you really admire and, and love their work. But those are the two ways. No more no more excuses like there was nobody there when I wanted to do it and was a kid. <laughs> now there are a lot of people there and you have the equipment and it costs a dollar ninety five, so no excuses. Go out and make a movie. <laughs> Words to live by. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Guys, go check out his website. Go check out some of the stuff he, they're putting out about Fright Night, about Chucky, about Psycho. Go watch Psycho too. I know I know a lot of people may not have seen this movie, but it really is a very cool sequel. And you can keep up with us on our Instagram, on our Facebook, on our Twitter, at LaunchpadPod, and check out our website, LaunchpadPod.com. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be doing another mini-sode. What have you been watching? And until then, Rocketeers, out. Thank you. Sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.